Mr. Speaker. Uh, and right now I'm joined by Sarah Martin, Dr. Phil Ferguson and John Moore. Good morning to you all. Morena. Good morning, everyone. Morena. Morena, indeed. Right, we've got a few big topics um, uh, in the haps at the moment. There's always big topics in, in politics, but there's um, some some big stuff. Some stuff we're not going to talk about um, this week, but we'll get to next week in terms of, I guess, we'll talk about Russia at some stage. Mm. Um, we're going to lead off today with the Defence Force cover-up, because this has been a story that's uh, been unraveling for a long time. It seems that uh, whenever there's a, a book out by Nikki Hager, there's denial, 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 <laughs> denial, 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 and then there's the truth coming out in the wash. Uh, and the Defence Force's story is certainly unraveling unravel- uh, with Claims made in the book Hit and Run that everyone will remember um, by Nikki Hagar and John Stevenson. Uh, claims that were at the time denied by the Defence Force are uh, now coming out in the wash. It's um, albeit with a lot of spin. Mm. It's the spin cycle still. Um, but it seems that the truth uh, is slowly coming out and it's going to be coming out. So, um, John, just first, can you remind us of the allegations? Sure. So it was probably a year ago that we discussed this book coming out, Hit and Run, by uh, Nikki Hager, the journalist, journalist Nikki Hager, and John Stevenson. Um, in that book, they made uh, very precise and concrete accusations against uh, SAS forces, New Zealand SAS forces operating at in Afghanistan, uh, where they had led um, a campaign against a particular village, uh, and where both um, uh, alleged uh, terrorists uh, were were killed as well as civilians. Now, the as you said, Jamie, the the armed forces immediately went into uh, management mode over these accusations. Um, said that um, Nikki Hager and John Stevenson had got the name of the village wrong mm-hmm. and the location of the village wrong. That no civilians were killed, and and because they had got this apparently had got this one fact wrong, it really brought into question all the allegations uh, in the book. And all, all the evidence presented in the book. Now it's it's been over a year since that book came out, and um, uh, with some uh, some journalists keeping an eye on the New Zealand Armed Forces website, they discovered that uh, there had been a release of information, which um, after carefully reading, basically indicated that the New Zealand Armed Forces were saying no. Uh, Nikki Hager and John Stevenson did get it right mm-hmm. uh, about the village name, and on top of that, that uh, there were civilians killed, and, and they put this in very careful language, but it wasn't uh, actually New Zealand troops, or we say S troops, that uh, fired the bullets that may have led to um, uh, troops being killed. The implication is that it might have been uh, an, an American uh, helicopter mm-hmm. uh, firing in the supposedly wrong direction, um, that, but that helicopter at the time would have been under the command of the New Zealand SAS forces. So mm-hmm. um, it seems like there's been uh, at least uh, misinformation put out here by the New Zealand Armed Forces initially, if not outright lies. And uh, if you look at the, um, uh, I had a look at their website where this new information is presented by the New Zealand Armed Forces, and it's written in such a way to to deliberately uh, obscure 
this new position of the New Zealand Armed Forces. It's written in such a um, bureaucratic, sort of uh, um, obscure type language that for the average person it would actually be pretty hard to understand what they're saying. And I found it, I, I really had to read the journalistic accounts of, of this, mm-hmm. um, what the New Zealand Armed Forces are really saying to, to get a grip of uh, their change in position. But yeah, it's 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 shocking, and it's shocking that it hasn't become a, a front page issue in mm-hmm. the media. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's shocking for for many reasons. One um, that it happened. Uh, two that even if they are try- the spin they're trying to pull off, uh, the fact that we were in control of the operation still means mm. it's down to us. And three, I mean they lied. There's no ifs or buts mm. about it. The defence force, our defence force, lied to the public, right mm. in their faces. Probably under um, directive from um, the Minister of Defence as well. Mm. They would have certainly have known about it at the time, as they did about the operation of sitting there in the body room. And uh, Bill English at the time used this uh, misinformation from the New Zealand Defence Forces saying that uh, Nicky Hagen and John Stevenson had got it wrong about an important yeah. fact to say, well, uh, who am I meant to believe? People who get their facts wrong or our, you know, our brave New Zealand Armed Forces. So he, he, he dismissed any claims. Oh, Oh, it was um, John Key. Yeah, if it would have been John Key, yes. Yeah. Yes. yes. Would, would it have been John Key? I Maybe. think it was Bill English. Oh, it was Bill? Oh. Yeah, I saw yeah, a Bill. I, I think I read, it was yeah. Bill English. I, I mean, yeah, it's it's shocking, and one of the most shocking aspects of it is this kind of underlying view that the Defence Force shouldn't be open to scrutiny or criticism. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that, that's been the approach of the Defence Force leaders, and yes, backed up by, I think it was Bill English, that... You know, how dare we criticise and question their behaviour overseas or their behaviour anywhere because they're, they're our guys and, you know, we, we, we believe every word they say. Uh, you know, they're not beyond reproach. It is completely possible they have, be, they have um, perpetrated war crimes and that should be open to scrutiny just like every other institution of the state. And it is, you know, a shocking indictment on those leaders and on our political leaders, the government at the time, that they have um, attempted to shut this down and have undermined the value, you know, the role that journalists have played in trying to uncover this. It's mm. just, I think this is a growing scandal. It's the kind of scandal that um, I think will keep growing and will expose some real democratic deficiencies and accountability deficiencies at the core of our, our state. Yeah, and I mean, they just like to, every chance they get, they like to rubbish Nicky, and he's always right. Mm. Um, You know, it's interesting, um, Phil, that this government, well, the governments in New Zealand have always had this kind of thing, if if, if we wait long enough, and if we make them wait for the information, and we lie right now, and then it comes out a little bit later on, they would have forgotten, or they won't care anymore. Yeah, I think that's that's an ongoing thing, you know, with with, um, both political parties, I mean, there's probably lots of things that happened in Vietnam that that the New Zealand Army was involved in that we don't know about and maybe we'll never know about. Um, And it's just fortunate for the public that in this one, the lie has has come undone, however Mm. it's come undone for for whatever reason. Um, And we should be very grateful that there are people like Nikki Haga around doing this work mm. because like you said you know that was just a chance for people in the government Bill English and um, 
uh, Jerry Brownlee um, to have a beat up on Nicky Hager. And like, this is Nicky Hager, you can't believe him, he's a conspiracy theorist and all this nonsense. Whereas actually, he's a really meticulous um, researcher. Yeah. Plus, of course, the other person involved in this was John Stevenson, who was on the ground in Afghanistan and who must be one of the few Western journalists who has, has spent, you know, a decent amount of time in Afghanistan who doesn't just rehash Defence Department, you know, US Defence Department or British De- British Ministry of, of Defence or New Zealand, whatever, press statements, yeah. but is actually a proper journalist, yeah. which most of them are, well, a lot of them aren't. They're just kind of propagandists for the Western governments that are interfering in Afghanistan. Mm. Um, I mean, it's obviously, it's time for an inquiry. Uh, and uh, are we more likely to get one now that we have a Labour-led government, or you know? And, and if so, um, can heads roll? Will heads roll within the military, not necessarily just you know? Um, if there is enough pressure put on this government, I think we'll get some form of inquiry. But I think it will be very restricted. Well, what about uh, an international inquiry? Well, the, absolutely there should be, but the problem with, for, for Labour <coughs> is that, that they're implicated in the whole uh, <coughs> mess of Afghanistan, and there was uh, Helen Clark's government that um, sent troops mm. over there and, and maintained a, 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 a force over there, as well as uh, giving the OK for SAS forces to, to, um, to operate um, in Afghanistan and other parts of the world as well. And the, the SAS, we've got to remember, is, uh, is really allowed to operate quite secretly, and we don't really know what they're doing mm. un- until um, journalists like Nicky Hagan and John Stevenson are able to get inside information. And it seems like um, there have been leaks from the armed forces, and there was even a, um, the idea that, uh, I won't name names, but that a, a, a prominent uh, a former cabinet minister was very unhappy with um, possibly being lied to by the armed forces and being g- given misinformation himself, and, mm-hmm. had, and, had, and had collaborated with Nicky Hager and John Stevenson over this issue. So... Uh, I, um, yeah, but I think the the Labour Party, the Labour Party, and the Labour led government would like to bury this issue. Really, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think we can all. Oh, I, I, I mean, I disagree. I think that um, both Labour and the Greens were committed to full inquiries um, prior when it came out. Uh, New Zealand first, too. I think you know. I, I imagine there will be some backpedalling to some degree, but I think they are committed to it. Um, I think there's enough moral pressure, really, for it to happen. Um, and I think the growing body of evidence and pressure will, will insist that there's inquiry. There will have to be mechanisms to protect members of the armed forces who may also themselves be feeling very uncomfortable with what happened and who may want to come forward. But I think, as John said, you know, the, the terms of reference of the inquiry will be critical, and I hope that they consult widely about those terms of reference because it may need to um, consider about the, how we continue in the future with our framework, our secrecy framework around the behaviour of the SAS. I, I mean, are we comfortable with this continuing as our modus operandi where they can pretty much do what they want without scrutiny because we you know, have some kind of... Um, we're all a bit complicit in this idea that they should be, well not all of us, but uh, that there should be a certain amount of secrecy around what they do. But, you know, is that, is that acceptable in a modern democracy that we don't have um, 
transparency around their behaviour and, and accountability. So maybe it would be great if the terms of reference were broad enough to include that kind of discussion. Yeah, I completely well. agree, Sarah, that the terms of references are, are key in any inquiry that's brought about. And again, the difficulty for Labour is that <coughs> it's likely that war crimes were actually carried out by New Zealand troops um, under the Helen Clark government. There, there were cases where uh, captured um, Taliban um, um, personnel were handed were captured by New Zealand troops and then handed over to um, American forces with the knowledge that it was more than likely that they were going to be tortured and that's a war crime. Yeah, yeah, and I think what Labour says in opposition and what they do in government, uh, you know, has <laughs> a big, has a big credibility. TPPA get, get there. Yeah, um, I think this is something that the Greens should um, and hopefully will be um, pushing on, but. I also think we need, isn't it a pity that we don't have a um, a public institution, well, an, an institution in New Zealand that actually conducted citizens' inquiries into these things mm. and that w- would be able to really seriously investigate them. I mean, we've got all this stuff about universities, critical conscience of society and all this stuff. You know, why aren't there a load of academics and lawyers and other professional people why don't we have some you know like body set up some institute that is able to conduct citizens inquiries into these things and you know and then it doesn't really matter what the government does because the information will be there and i know it's very costly and all the rest of it but surely we've got enough well-to-do liberals in New mm. Zealand that they could fund that kind of, of institution and instead of this claptrap about being the critical conscience of society, they could actually be the critical mm. conscience of society. Um, that leads into the next topic <laughs> of conversation where, where academics and uh, lawyers certainly aren't the uh, conscience of the country uh, and we're going to let you ta- lead on this one, Sarah. No, well, it's interesting. I mean, we're talking about the ongoing um, and alleged um, cases of sexual harassment and sexual assault that are being revealed at the heart of many of our most powerful institutions. And, you know, I was thinking there are links between all this behaviour, which is that we need to be mature enough to admit that we've failed, that mm. we've made mistakes. And I think that's just, you know, what's happened in Afghanistan and the SAS. The government may need to admit, and the defence force may need to admit that we've made mistakes. And I think the same thing needs to happen with um, uh, with these issues of, of where people have uncovered significant and systemic failures in the way that major institutions and workplaces prevent sexual harassment in the first place and sexual assault, and then um, address it and remediate it and prevent it reoccurring. Uh, you know. I, I, I got a bit worked up last night thinking about the fact that, you know, it's not 1952. I am mm. so sorry that these women, these young people, women and men, are still, um, you know, having to be subjected in their workplaces, in their political activities, in their areas of study, to the kind of harassment and bullying and abuse and assault that we have been fighting for for decades to eliminate and yet we still have it occurring in some of our most powerful and should be most capable institutions with mm-hmm. extremely good resources. They should have a good understanding of what's happened, but instead we seem to have this, you know, this kind of ongoing underestimation and of how serious it is and how 
it has to be addressed. Um, you know, I, I read a very good article by Catriona McLennan in the Herald yesterday saying that if it was an issue of theft, they would have procedures in place. They would yep. they would act very quickly and there would be due process and there would be fair process, but they would know what to do. And yes, sexual harassment, um, that kind of bullying behaviour, we still don't have the procedures in place to prevent it in the first instance and then address it. And then you... So, yeah, I think it is problematic and I, I think we need to go back to basics and, and look at why this is still occurring. Mm, mm. And, 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 you know, I think the most egregious case is, unfortunately, in the Russell McVeigh, where some very powerful men have been allowed to continue in their positions of power. And the, the, the kind of the impetus has been on the woman to remove themselves from the workplace and remove themselves from from um, interaction with those men. But, you know, that is not acceptable. That sends a message that we're not serious about stopping that kind of behaviour. Yeah, and it sends a message um, to a lot of people that um, you are responsible for your own safety. We're yeah, it does. The emphasis is on keep women keeping themselves safe. Yeah, you don't. <laughs> no, actually, we should be able to turn up to work <laughs> and and work, you know, and and be um, fully valued as fully contributing human beings and workers, mm. not as chattels to you know subject to sexual harassment, humiliation, degradation in our workplaces or our places. Yeah, and then it continues with the handling and mishandling of the allegations afterwards as well. Mm, it does. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, it, sh- it shouldn't become a political issue in the sense that uh, uh, institutions, parties, etc., are trying to manage these accusations. Mm. Uh, there, there should be full transparency and full openness when any such accusation is made, and it doesn't seem like that has been the case. Um, I think this uh, points to uh, the rise of all these accusations around sexual harassment points to how gender issues are becoming a central political issue in the West at least anyway, you know, um, uh, issues of uh, women's oppression, of uh, um, uh, income disparities, of, of violence against women, sexual attacks against women, etc. That, that gen- gender is at the fore at the moment. Um, and it points to, I think, that uh, the claims that uh, women and men are fully equal now, um, uh, w- when held up to scrutiny, don't don't actually seem to be the case. Um, I think, yeah, from a, I'd be interested to hear Sarah's point of view in terms of uh, power relations in the workplace. But I, I think there's a case to be made that, especially since the almost collapse of the power of organised labour of unions in countries like New Zealand, that workers. So the majority of workers who work in the private workforce in New Zealand aren't unionised, uh, have no real connection to unions. And so when incidents do happen of, of sexual harassment or violence or bullying, etc., workers can feel incredibly vulnerable and not really know uh, what process they can go through um, uh, and, and what support there is out there for them to um, address the case. Oh, I, I absolutely agree, John. I mean, I think this is a big problem. We still have a very, we have a very paternalistic workplace culture where, um, you know, managers, workers, and bosses are managers and bosses set the set the rules for the organisation. Workers are often kind of completely um, alienated, isolated on their own, and have very little power, um, very little voice in the workplace, and very little understanding or knowledge about um, what supports there are out there. And if it is 
if there is no union there, um, there often isn't any institutional support for those for people who are being bullied and harassed. Um, so there is a huge impetus on um, unions to to organise labour, to organise workers and provide those infrastructural supports. And at the same time, there's a huge um, you know, responsibility on employers to stop um, to, to reverse this whole relationship where, whereby the workers are chattels who um, mm. come in and just have to put up with stuff um, because they're lucky to have a job is basically the message that, that it's, it's the crux of the relationship that is in a huge percentage of workplaces out there that we should just be grateful we've got a job and shut up and put up with whatever comes our way. Mm. Mm. And there needs to be um, strong emphasis around em- employment, uh, what's in the contract, and not just like, hey, have a little read of your contract and this is the sexual harassment part of it. Um, mm. I think there needs to be a little bit more education, and I think the education really needs to start in your first year of university as well, or your last year of high school. Um, you know, we, there's more and more going uh, into sexual education around consent. Uh, and the like, but I think we're missing the beat when it comes to sexual harassment and what is and isn't appropriate, uh, even in terms of um, just down to to your average bullshit catcalling uh, or, or, or just or what you say in the workplace. Um, but we don't learn about power, power dynamics, um, mm. which is which is huge. And I don't mm. think we can, in a, sadly, we can't expect employers and institutions and businesses to lead on that because they're really about, well, arguably about protecting themselves. So with, with unions being in such a weak position and most workers not being represented by workers when they do sign contracts, that contract has been completely written by the employer mm. and often won't be challenged at all by the worker um, because they don't have the, the legal knowledge to challenge aspect of the contract and uh, they're, they're, they're one person, okay? the whole institution so I don't think we can expect um, uh, I think yeah having clauses and contracts etc are very important I mean um, one shocking thing is that um, we have it makes the most restrictive labor legislation in the world um, so for example if unions were to organize against a particular workplace where they believe bullying sexual harassment um, etc was happening against their workers and wanted to lead a, a walkout uh, or a strike that would be illegal for them to do that, mm-hmm. except that, mm. except when yeah. the contract has concluded and there's negotiation over the contract. But yeah, uh, during uh, the, the the life of the contract, workers can actually not um, stage uh, that type of protest against their their boss or institution. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, what, and what's it saying to the people out there where the halls of power, aka um, this uh, labour youth camp? Uh, where you would think this would be the most, um, you know, the place where, where you could feel kind of the most safe, uh, where anyone could feel safe. You're there um, with, with the leader, you know, you've got the president of the party there, um, you've got all, all these people that um, are there to support you and, and nurture you as uh, a young uh, up-and-coming uh, uh, Labour, maybe MP, or or just somebody that's there to support the party, and then it turns into some kind of booze fueled fucking sex up. It's it's sorry to say that term, but um, it's it's the last place you'd expect it. Uh, and and even um, the, the stuff that's coming out of the Labour Party uh, is trying to kind of explain it away uh, and deflect. 
Yeah, it, do, it does feel like, um, I mean, we need to be careful with our words, but it does feel the responses from Jacinda Ardern and the Labour Party feel very managed, don't they? Mm. And I think that uh, um, people can see through uh, uh, managed responses to a, a political crisis. Um, I think... Um, I mean, it would be a shame if there was just a, a sharp reaction to uh, uh, events like this and, and suddenly uh, universities or political organisations as political organisations felt that they need to suddenly cut out all alcohol from social events or... We do uh, with youth. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a problem. Um, young people, you know, say 15 of that drinking, certainly. But um, I, I think there is a place for uh, uh, managed social events where there's alcohol and where, where um, um, maybe you have um, older others who who can play a um, a managing role of yeah. those social events mm. rather than just completely yeah. clamping down on them. And I think that's something that could happen at, say, universities. That universities are suddenly getting these accusations against them, say, the law school here, and they suddenly just completely clamp down on um, what they, they feel is social behaviour that could lead to uh, accusations of sexual harassment, etc. Well, I mean, it's not the alcohol I, Yeah. I, I mean, I agree. I, I, there will be social... I mean, you know, socialising is all part of life and part of being young and sometimes when you're older too but um you know uh, young people having alcohol may be unaware of just how vulnerable they can become mm. when they're drunk um and these were quite young kids 15 16 year olds who may have been may not have had regular exposure to um, alcohol so i think john's right about having making sure that there should have been responsible adults in place who were keeping an eye on things um who understand alcohol understand the um the way alcohol can impact on people's behaviour and keeping an eye on things. And I'm not saying that that's an excuse for what happened, because it's not. No. Um, you know, that there should still not have been that sexual um, abuse. Right. Um, but there needs to be, I think, in those occasions, some awareness that um, these things are more often more likely to happen in alcohol-fueled situations. But I, I do think we have slight, you know, we do have a culture that enables this kind of behaviour. Oh, um, you know, we are still a pretty kind of. Um, we we don't necessarily take it seriously. I mean, I you know, I was at Otago University twenty years ago, and it was still you know, it was a issue there. There was always you know, we knew these things happened, and yet we have enabled them. We haven't taken it seriously enough. Um, and you know, I think we can't underestimate the impact on those on the lives of the, of the people, young men and women who do, um, who are harassed or assaulted or bullied. Is that you know, it often leads to a significant reduction in their ability to participate in study or participate in the workforce, or you know, and, and it can impact on their mental and emotional well-being. But I think we've really got to um, culturally own up to that to that that sense of enablement um, and turning a blind eye to these attitudes. You know, women are not chattels. They cannot be subject to this this kind of behaviour. You know, if it's a social event, you know, turn a blind eye, which it sounds like it may have happened at Otago Law School. I'm, I'm not sure of everything, but there must be, there has to be a certain amount of, you know, turning away and letting the stuff happen. Mm -hmm. Right, we're going to have to go. Sorry, we've run out of time, but um, thank you all for joining me this morning. Sarah, thank you so much from Wellington uh, and John and Phil in the studio. Cheers. Um,